When you were 17, you could sleep all night and still be ready for a nap. What happened to those days? Hey everybody, Aaron Wenzel here, host of the Concierge Medicine Show, where we exist to give you the conversations that you need to be having with your doctor in 30 minutes or less. Welcome to episode three. Is there even any hope for sleep? I mean, in this world of fast track executives and the latest greatest startup entrepreneur and always trying to manage and balance a family life with our work ambitions, it's really hard to turn it off. I mean, our minds are going a million miles a minute, and then all of a sudden at the end of every productive day, we are supposed to just magically be able to turn it off? Well, I'm here to tell you that as the case for sleep is being made, there is hope. In today's show, I'm gonna be giving you three things that you need to be considering and conversations that you need to be having with your primary care physician as it pertains to sleep. Here's the deal. This is really important. And here's why it's important. It's important for two reasons. Number one, there are tremendous short-term consequences for being fatigued as a consequence of not you know, getting enough sleep. Number one, you can't learn anything new. You're irritable, you're at risk for auto accidents, uh, it is a mood, uh, uh, it causes a mood depression, not necessarily depression in the short term, certainly in the long term it can. Um, and interestingly, one night of bad sleep, if you have a chronic disease already, like diabetes or hypertension, can cause an entire day of out of control blood pressures or blood sugars from one night. That's in the short term. In the long term, this is really a huge consequence. We have the f this, this fatigue epidemic fueling the flames of obesity, right? Uh, clear correlation between obesity uh, and chronic fatigue. Alcohol abuse, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, depression, anxiety. And let's be honest, when you're chronically fatigued, you're no fun being around. How do you even measure the consequences and the effect of chronic fatigue on relationships? This is a really big deal. That's why this is important. I want to give you three very practical and real conversations around sleep that you need to be having with your doc. Number one, you're probably, I mean, you fall into one of three camps. Either you're, you know what I'm talking about and you take sleeping medication currently. You know what I'm talking about and struggle with sleep, but don't take anything, but are considering some medication. Or you struggle with sleep, but you'd never touch a medication. No matter what camp you fall into, this is a really interesting conversation still to be had because whether you, whether it's you or someone you love, somebody is struggling with sleep. And so when we address this question of, do I need sleeping medication? First of all, if we're at the point where we're, let's just 
presuppose that we're already at the place where we need to be saying medication or no medication, that we've done everything that we can outside of the medication world to address our sleep. We really have to look at it in two lanes. One is there are medication solutions that are non-habit forming that can help you sleep. And then there is another lane of habit forming medications that can help you sleep as well. In the non-habit forming lane, we've got the two most common uh, medications that have been around the longest and are, you know, for the most part, thought to be safe, um, really no risk for long-term abuse um, or habit-forming type behaviors, um, and that is Benadryl. Believe it or not, the active ingredient in Benadryl is a first-line treatment for insomnia, um, something that I take regularly uh, after working a run of night shifts and my sleep-wake cycle is off. I will often take uh, Benadryl prior to going to sleep. It is fantastic um, for sleep aid. Um, uh, it's good for allergies too, but in this case, it's actually really, really good for sleep. Um, it should be noted that about 10% of the population that takes Benadryl will have kind of a paradoxical effect. Um, it actually makes you hyper. Obviously, if that's you, it's not a good choice for you. It's something to talk about with your doc. But in most cases, Benadryl is a fantastic first-line treatment for insomnia. The second non-habit-forming -habit option is melatonin. Again, been around a long, long time. Melatonin is actually a hormone, uh, and it, we now understand this robust um, application of melatonin in, in, in health, but it's most famous and most widely used in the context of treating insomnia. Uh, and one of the commonest phrases or conversations that I have with my private clients is, oh, doc, I've tried melatonin. Uh, it just doesn't work for me. You would be surprised. You have some people need really, really, really high levels of melatonin to initiate and maintain sleep. So if you've tried it before and it hasn't worked, I would chat with your doctor about the dosing and you can really push those doses up pretty high uh, in order to, to see if it has that effect for you. Because you might be somebody that just needs a higher dose to get the benefit. Again, really considered a safe medication, really no long-term or short-term consequences of significance um, with those two options. Then we've got the other lane, the habit-forming medication that you and I get inundated with advertisements about. We all uh, know somebody, maybe ourselves who's either using it or um, has used it in the past. And that is the world of uh, the Ambien and Lunesta. Those are the two most common. They work very similarly, have very similar side effect profiles, very similar um, uh, net effect. Um, they're both considered hypnotics. Um, they both work very well at uh, making you sleepy and maintain sleep. The challenge with them becomes they, your brain and the chemical in these compounds develop a relationship very quickly. And um, they're intended, like lots of medication, to be used in the short term. Uh, maybe coming from overseas, you know, you have 
coming off night shifts today. It helps with the transition. It helps getting you back into that normal sleep-wake cycle. The challenge becomes when you blink and 10 years have gone by and you've been on Ambien and Lunesta every night and now you're totally paralyzed without it. And you, it, it's virtually impossible to initiate sleep without it once you get to a certain point. So there are drawbacks. The benefit of them is that they work, for most people, fantastic. I mean, they really do the job. If your goal is to get to sleep, they will usually put you to sleep. So much so that one of the big things that I coach my clients, my private clients with is, listen, if you don't have a seven to eight, maybe nine hour runway of sleep time, don't take this medicine. Because if you're one of these people who need help to get five or six hours of sleep, you might be pretty groggy those first few hours when you wake up. And that can have a lot of negative consequences. It puts your safety at risk. Obviously, if you're a high performer and you're showing up at the office first thing in your peak hours and you're not on your game, that can be a real problem. So the first consideration with your physician is, do I have enough bandwidth in my schedule to carve out at least seven hours to commit to restful time? If you don't, I would not recommend Ambien uh, or Lunesta. It, you really can run into problems if you don't have that. Um, the, the next thing to consider is that there, again, about that 10% of the population has a really undesirable effect on uh, a side effect of these medicines, and that is this amnesic type response where they will be very forgetful. Um, again, if you're sleeping, that's fine. But there are plenty of documented cases, both celebrity and otherwise, where you get people who have run into problems with um, using this medication for sleep, but then not sleeping. And there's a whole euphoric uh, kind of amnesia type scenario where you get into behavior where you don't even remember. And obviously the implications of that are pretty clear. Um, you don't wanna do that. If you're gonna use these medications, especially the habit-forming medicines, you've gotta be ready for bed within 30 minutes or an hour, and you gotta have about seven hours. You know, the, the other thing to consider is uh, if you're on these long-term, um, there are some serious considerations for coming off of them. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but those, those are the non-habit forming and habit forming options for sleep medication. If, if you're at that point in your life where you're really struggling with sleep and presupposing you've gone through all of the other things prior to the medication discussion, the medication discussion with your physician is, um, the, the non-habit forming version, the Benadryl, the melatonin, have we exhausted those or the Lunesta Ambien? Are these appropriate for me? And do I have enough um, safety built around taking that um, that I understand that I'll be safe? And I guess thirdly around that is understanding that there is a clear correlation with um, a potential for abuse and um, dependency on those medications, which, you know, is, is, is case by case. You got to look at it and figure out if it's right for you. But those are the options. The second conversation I want to have is around the topic of, I'm already on sleeping medication, how do I come off? And this is a really good question and it's not super easy. It's achievable, but it's not super easy. Um, you know, 
as we talked about, if you're on sleeping medication and you happen to be on Benadryl or melatonin, there really isn't any negative consequence for not taking it. It might be a little bit challenging to get back into sleep. Um, again, you'd have to lean on the sleep hygiene type techniques, but there really isn't any physiologic um, response uh, of dependency or withdrawal that take place with the melatonin and Benadryls of the world. However, if you've been taking uh, the habit-forming sleep agents like the Lunesta and the Ambien's of the world, it really, you really, 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 really need to have close supervision with your physician. The withdrawals can be pretty intense, um, and the consequences uh, as it pertains to sleep and overall mood can be pr pretty, pretty intense, like I said. And so, um, not that it can't be done, it certainly can be done and, and is done. I do it all the time. I take people off of these medications. It's just something that you and your doctor have to walk through together. There has to be a plan, a weaning off, um, very strategic. So if you're somebody who's taking them and you want to, and you're doing great, then stay the course. Obviously it's working for you, but if you're at a point in your life where you want to um, really pursue non-pharmacologic um, strategies to get some sleep and you need to come off the Ambien and Lunesta of the world, it needs to be done very carefully and under doctor supervision. You know, the last conversation really is something that we've alluded to a couple of times now, and that is this notion of sleep hygiene. It's a term that uh, us in the medical field use to kind of umbrella discuss what are all the things um, for clean sleeping. And uh, it sounds kind of goofy the first time I heard it, but that's really the official term. And it includes things like, do you sleep in a dark room? You know, I there are plenty of adults that have a TV on in the background. And people say, I can't sleep unless there's a little light in the background. Or is there, you know, a hall light on? Or do your children sleep in your room so you have lights on? There's this ambient lighting. Listen, if there is anything but utter darkness, it is affecting your biochemistry and it is affecting your sleep. Rule number one for sleep is it's got to be pitch black. It just has to be. And if you've got to sleep with children or people who need a light, then you need to get a mask. I mean, really, we really do. That's step number one. Step number two, quiet. It has to be quiet. If you're sleeping with white noise, again, if you've got the TV on in the background for white noise, it is interrupting your deep sleep, which has tremendous consequences because you may be... You may not be able to get to sleep as soon as you need to be. You might get to sleep but never go deep enough. And so your sleep is not satisfying. So a dark, quiet room is step number one and two. Step number three is zero screen time within 30 minutes of bedtime. That means no TV. Certainly no TV in the bedroom. I'm a huge advocate of no TV in the bedroom. Um, it's just... It's too tempting to lay in bed and turn on TV. It's also a big no-no to have your phone. I mean, I'm all for social media. I'm all for t connectivity. I'm all for, you know, the benefits that technology has given to us. But you have to have boundaries and you have to put that thing on your nightstand 30 minutes before bed minimum. And especially if you're a high-level executive, if you're a public figure, if the last thing you need to be thinking about right before you go to bed 
is stuff. That's sacred time and you have to absolutely guard that 30 minute window leading up to bed. So no screen time for 30 minutes. Um, let's see, what else? Um, I'm actually a fan of not only no screen time for 30 minutes, but no stimulation for 30 minutes. Very mild, mild to zero stimulation for 30 minutes. And that includes reading. If you're somebody who's used to reading before bed, that's fine. Just don't do it in bed. You need to be sitting up. If you feel the need to read and that's part of your routine, which I'm a love reading, I'm a big believer in reading, but you gotta do it in a chair with some, with some ambient lighting, when it's bedtime, your bed needs to be, your body, like a little baby, gets in that routine and knows as soon as you hit those sheets, as soon as your head hits the pillow, the process is beginning. Just like when you smell barbecue an hour before it's being served, your digestive tract is totally ready for that meal. It prepares. Your body has to be prepared for sleep. And anything you're doing to stimulate is really going to stand in the way of when you're asking your body to sleep, to sleep. So... No stimulation. If you got to read, get out of your bed and read. Um, let's see. What else can we talk about that would be great for sleep hygiene? Uh, no big meals right before bed and no strenuous exercise about an hour before bed. I like to work out at night. There was years, from, a decade or more of my life where I worked out at night. But you don't go to bed for another hour. That can really, really mess you up if you're sensitive to activity. So... These are all basic things, but they are all lumped together in this sleep hygiene. And to be honest, for about 80% of people who struggle with sleep, if you were to check the boxes on all of these dark, quiet, no stimulation, no screen time, you know, no big meals, no activity, all these rules, eight out of 10 people who struggle with sleep, they're gonna fall asleep. For those 20% of folks who are doing everything right and are still not able to get rest, um, the most common reasons I hear about are I just can't shut my brain off, I have so many things on my mind, and I get it. I totally get it. Um, sometimes prayer, um, evening quiet time, these are all things to help quiet the mind. And if those things don't work, obviously you can have your discussion with your doc about medications that can help you get to sleep. But as a whole, that's how I approach sleep. I know you know this. It, sleep is, it's everything. I mean, when you're fatigued, you're just not your best self. And I want that for you. I hope you enjoyed this show. Leave your questions in your comments. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to our YouTube channel or the podcast, please do so. Um, and again, it would mean the world to me if you left a comment uh, and a rating that would just, uh, it's, it's how we improve and we would love to know what topics you'd like to learn more about or things that you would like us to discuss even further. Um, and again, until our paths cross or our conversations uh, cross, I wish you the best. Take care. Hey everybody, thanks again for watching the show. I'm sure it goes without saying, but I feel compelled to share with you. Obviously I wanna help uh, as many people as possible. Um, but before you make any medical changes, please, please consult with your physician. Don't do any of this on your own. Um, you don't wanna put yourself in any harm's way. 
And um, again, thanks a bunch for watching the show. If you have any questions or comments, again, please leave them and we'll get back to you. Take care.